Good morning and welcome back to another episode of Backbench Drivers. I'm your host, John Lawson, and joining me here, as always, is my co-host, Matthew. Um, I'd also like to introduce a very special guest this week, Barkley McGain. Uh, he has been a very prominent name in conservative politics, but across the whole spectrum, I think everyone recognizes him. Uh, whether it's for his shenanigans or political involvement, uh, there's a lot to like. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Fantastic. Awesome. Um, thank you so much, guys. Um, appreciate it. Uh, yeah, it's really good to be on. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Barclay. No worries. It's good to have you on the podcast this week. Cheers, guys. So the topics we're going to be discussing are very Queensland-centric this week, hence why we thought you'd be, uh, gives us some great insight, Barclay. Uh, we're going to be talking about the recent leadership dispute with Palaszczuk stepping down, uh, what might have caused that, and uh, where to next for the Liberal Party and Conservatives in general. Um, so, Barkley, before we launch into the actual topics, would you like to give us a little intro into your history in politics and uh, why you joined the Liberal Party, what's happened since then? Uh, I think the audience would be very interested. Yeah, for sure, guys. So, I had the really rare opportunity when I was in grade 11 studying on the Gold Coast um, to go on a fully funded scholarship over to the US um, to do speech and debate over there. That was in around 2016. And obviously, in 2016 was a big year um, in the United States, and I had the privilege to go to a few different states, um, traveling around doing speech and debate. Um, and I also had the opportunity to go to a Trump rally. And for a lot of um, people our age in conservative circles, um, obviously the Trump effect was huge and impossible to ignore. And it was a lot of people's entry into politics. And as much as I'd been a member of the young LNP here in Queensland prior to that, um, I think that's where I definitely honed in um, a lot of my views because over there, you know, everything is so uh, partisan and so divisive over there and everyone almost feels like they have to have an opinion on something um, if they're able to contribute into intellectual conversation or something like that. So, um, so yeah, it, w- it was really good over there. Um, I had a you know, very eye-opening experience um, seeing a lot of different things and then coming back here, um, I suppose I really honed in my involvement um, with the young LMP, we had the 2017 state election, and I was very um, involved helping out there. And and um, eventually, it led to straight out of high school, me being offered a six month full time role uh, working on the re election of the Morrison government uh, with the Queensland Liberal National Party headquarters. Um, and that was an incredible opportunity. Um, for about three months, I was put up in a hotel in the city, and we're working pretty much seven uh, seven day weeks, pretty much all together. Um, and it was getting quite, uh, I guess, intense in the final weeks of the campaign. And obviously, a lot of people will recall the 2019 federal election was supposed to be the election that Scott Morrison lost. Um, and, of course, he went on to win. And at the time, we thought, you know, he was the saint, the saint of conservatism that came out um, and was able to knock off Bill Shorten. This is obviously after, not too long after, we'd just gotten rid of um, Malcolm Turnbull um, as Prime Minister. So we thought that he was, you know, quite a great leader. Um, obviously, it turned out maybe not to be um, quite critical of Scott Morrison these days. And I think, to be honest, a lot of people are. Um, he turned out to not be what we thought. Uh, so not long after that, um, I went and I started studying at university. So I study economics um, at UQ. Um, I recently graduated, actually, so I'm pretty stoked about that. Um, Congratulations. End, thank you, mate. Appreciate it. Um, but in the end of 2019, um, or maybe maybe midway through 2019, I ascended to the role of president of the Gold Coast Young LMP. Um, and that was something that I was super proud about. It was the the largest branch, um, and I was the youngest ever chair in the history of the young, in, of the young LNP, and we're only 19, and we had a super young, fresh-faced executive, and kind of one of the big things that we wanted to do was really 
galvanized involvement. So one thing that you might be familiar with on the Gold Coast is that we almost have wall-to-wall uh, Liberal Party um, MPs all around. So the idea of coming out to campaign on a weekend for for many seems a bit redundant because the, the candidate will always hold on. It's always a safe seat, that kind of thing. So we really wanted to increase that kind of um, membership and also the participation from the members. So we decided to do a suite of, I guess, new kind of reforms to the branch um, in ways to promote it and, and things like that. And um, and we decided to do a schoolies video um, in December of 2019. Um, that's about, what, four years ago now. And um, we decided we go on the streets and ask some, peop- uh, ask some questions to people, you know, what are their thoughts on Scott Morrison? What are their thoughts on freedom of speech? Uh, what are their thoughts on our Australian national flag and national anthem? Um, and it was that final question which I suppose got me in a bit of trouble. Um, I posed that question to someone and I got the response of more or less, we've got to stop celebrating a culture that couldn't invent the bloody wheel. Um, and for that, for that crime of simply holding the microphone, um, I was flashed onto every single major newspaper. Um, I was flashed onto uh, all these different TV programs that I've never even heard of, um, mostly left-wing ones. Um, and I guess, yeah, I just became like a bit of a, a target for the media. I think they certainly built this caricature around me. Um, it's a, you know, a guy from the Gold Coast with a name like Barclay McGain went to a private school. He's in the Young Liberals, and they, they almost formed this caricature that I was some rich, snobby elitist, you know, a symbol of the uh, patriarchy um, and, um, and racism that needed to be torn down. Um, and I suppose from there, it's kind of just like it's just, it's just been little spot fires that have emerged since, if that makes sense, lads. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, I think that's something that we can all sympathise with. Even if it hasn't happened to us, we've seen a lot of people like you get in trouble saying things Mm. that are common sense or that um, basically majority of the population agrees with, but the intellectual elite doesn't. Yep. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I I think that 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 was something that I fully confronted. Um, I think there was an, an instance where, you know, I, I was just attending a friend of mine's Halloween party in late 2021. And, you know, I thought, okay, well, um, obviously this is a topical um, issue in the news. Um, I attended as Kyle Rittenhouse, um, who obviously was... Which is hilarious, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so obviously that, that raised a few eyebrows. But, you know, it was one of the best costumes at the party. It's quite simple. Um, you know, a pudgy young guy, and I, I fit the role pretty well. And, and all of a sudden, you know, I, I just thought this is a harmless thing. And then suddenly the next week, you've got Scott Morrison doing a press conference condemning me. And it was just completely out of the blue, completely something you do not expect. Um, people trying to almost take an issue and then trying to make it look like they've overdealt with it to create an allure that they're really cracking down on something and that they don't want the election to be, you know, um, about this issue when they're, they're, they themselves are the one making it about that issue. So, I mean, I'm not saying that that's necessarily an intellectual elite himself um, in Scott Morrison, but yeah, that was certainly eye-opening that something that just, something so small can be just blown way out of proportion, you know, something like a, um, a house party with mates for Halloween um, just ends up going all the way to the, to the lodge in, in Canberra. So, yeah, quite staggering, um, but we, we live in the we learn and, um, yeah, so. <laughs> so just with that incident, did you experience much blowback from the people around you and the young liberals or is it just from the people up the top like Scott Morrison? I think um, most of the people around me, well, I, I think there's two kind of people that join um, a, part, a group like the young LNP. I think there's people who are very aspirational and certainly want to climb the ladder 
And then there are people who, I guess, more so believe in the cause. Um, they believe in things like um, the presumption of innocence. And, well, you got one crew, the first crew that I mentioned, um, they're the crew that kind of thought, oh, you know, I might have to, you know, unfriend Barclay on Facebook. Oh, I hope that uh, a photo of us, you know, playing cricket or watching cricket at the Gabba from a few years ago, I wonder if he can delete that, that kind of thing. Um, because they're very obsessed with climbing that ladder and they see that any kind of guilt by association i think one of the one of the greatest cancers we have um right now is guilt by association the idea that simply because you appear in a photograph with someone or you appear on a podcast with someone even um that you instantly adopt their viewpoints um i think is quite frankly absurd um and then you've got the other crew as i mentioned who are there because they're there for values and whatnot and for them, I think they saw it as a nod to the presumption of innocence, um, that as conservatives, that ought be something that we kind of stand up for. Um, we see in a number of instances in recent times where the presumption of innocence has been completely trampled over. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the conservative side are not standing up. So we've had politicians who've been smeared against with fake allegations. Um, we've had members of the public smeared against with fake allegations. Um, and even, you know, some of the highest people in society, like Cardinal Pell, um, you know, smeared with all, like, face, uh, faceless allegations in many instances. Um, and sadly, I think that was part of, um, part of his death, to be honest. And it's because we haven't got a right of centre side that is standing up for the idea of presumption of innocence. That, hey, when we say, hey, let's take it to the court and let's resolve this and let people go back to their normal lives. Um, the idea of trial by media is almost inevitable in so many scenarios now. I think Bruce Lehrman's seeing the exact same thing, and I mean, I'm not going to pretend to know the ins and outs of what happened there, but it's it's quite a shame that we can't seem to ever have a fair trial anymore, um, and I think that's, that's a great shame, and it's because the conservative side had not muscled up. Do you see a quick and easy fix for this, or is this something that will take a lot of time with new people coming into the party to try and stand up for these values? Yeah, I think it'll definitely take some time. I think there is a bit of a period there where in 2022, I think, and even the 2020 state election a little bit, we had a lot of people joining minor parties um, because if the minor party experiment was ever going to work, it would be the 2020 state election where you've got both major parties saying that we're going to lock you out of your state. Uh, we're going to lock you away from your parents' nursing home. Um, in the name of this virus, which has, you know, a 99% survival rate. Um, and then the federal election uh, where you've got, um, you know, Morrison, who's unpopular, and Anthony Albanese, who's also nothing special. Um, but as you can see, the minor party effect didn't really take off um, all that much. Um, you know, Cl Clive Palmer, for instance, you know, only won one seat down in Victoria. Um, and I think that, you know, One Nation actually, you know, collapsed um, stunningly at the 2020 state election. So... I think people tried that experiment, and I think slowly they are coming home to roost, so to speak. They realise that if you truly do want to have an impactful say um, in the trajectory of your of your state, um, that you need to get involved within a major party. Um, for anyone on the right side of politics, that probably does mean um, to to get involved with the LNP. And it sounds so odd that I'm saying this because it is in fact true that I'm still. Um, I guess not permitted to join slash suspended um, from the LNP. That's still four years later after the incident. But I think that, you know, it, I, I have no qualm in saying that, like, you certainly are um, more able to have a bit of influence on politics and um, and on policy um, by being within a major party. And a lot of people will say that they're irredeemable. Well, I point to a number of key instances where some of the people championing conservative causes are from the Liberal and National Parties being Jared Rennick um, in my home state of Queensland, also Matt Canavan in Queensland, 
Uh, but then you've got other people in other states like Senator Alex Antic. Um, so some fantastic examples there of people who I think of uh, are bucking the trend. Um, they are, you know, standing up against things like, uh, or standing up for things like the presumption of innocence. And, um, and you know, I think that they're a breath of fresh air. Obviously, they're, they're a rare commodity these days, but um, some positive things are coming into place. The, the people are coming home to roost. And you'll find that in a lot of states, uh, not all states, um, but it is certainly the members that decide the direction and the people who end up representing those people in um in the Liberal Party in, in different states. So it's really important that people um, rechange their thinking on that way, that these um these major parties aren't necessarily whether you agree or disagree with them, they're simply vehicles with which to achieve a policy outcome. And I think that once we kind of reframe that kind of thinking, they will hopefully uh, trend in a more positive direction, I hope, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Matthew and myself are in full agreement on this. This actually brings us perfectly into maybe our second lot of articles. Matthew, if you want to skip to that, we'll read them out. And um, maybe you can tell us what you think about uh, the current state of conservative leadership in Queensland and um, sure. what, what you'd like to see with it. And um, yeah, basically, if it's viable, if it's going to win the next election. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Mm-hmm. The, the first one is from the Australian Financial Review. It's- mm-hmm. It's titled, David Who, Chris Afuli's Hungry for Queensland's Top Job. Um, it's written by Mark Ludlow. Yep. Almost 40% of Queenslanders might not know who he is, but opposition leader David Chris Afuli, the son of a North Queensland cane farmer, believes he is the right person to become the Premier at next year's state election. Um, yeah, says, right. And then in a, later on in the section, it says, getting more moderate. Mr. Chris Afuli's a self-described centrist who believes his time in regional Queensland has shaped his values and thirst for hard work. He recently said he was getting more moderate in his views as he got older, but he's opposed to the voice of parliament. And then contrast that to a Guardian article, which has accused him of bowing to the party's far right in qualifying his support for the treaty. And um, basically says that in a hearing to the party room and to the branches, he's gone to the far right party so i just wanted to see what barkley thought of that yeah definitely well i think you've just nailed the kind of split in the media obviously you've got um the the fairfax kind of um crowd that would obviously say oh you know he's actually you know quite moderate and then you've got the guardian saying oh he's an all-out right-wing extremist well i mean obviously i think the the afr have probably got that more spot on i think um he definitely would come under the the moderate fold And, and then the reason i say that though is i think that I point to something like the Pathway to Treaty Bill, um, where Christopher Foley made it binding on the parliamentary team in February um, to support this Pathway to Treaty Bill. None of us really knew what we were supporting, um, you know, and there was no real consultation um, with the LNP State Council, which is the body which authorises all LNP policy. Um, and he went ahead and supported it um, because at that time it was taboo to be against the voice. And now all of a sudden come October when we had a resounding defeat um, and, you know, a lot of us on campus at UQ were very involved with the Vote No campaign. Um, he switches on, on the Monday after The Voice um, and says all of a sudden we're not doing this pathway to treaty bill after they've already uh, proposed it. So, yeah, it's a tricky it's a tricky kettle of fish, I think, that we're following. Um, what we're seeing, you know, I mentioned in that first article that he's, you know, 40% of people don't know him, David Who. Um, but I think that it is also hard to get, I guess, a bit of name ID, particularly in state politics. Um, it is so seldom covered it seems to be that a lot of the journalists nowadays in the political media seem to gravitate towards the federal field and there is so little coverage of state politics in queensland and the reason why that is i I truly believe is because there is no upper house um 
like, you know, plain and simple, um, every other state in Australia has, you know, the House of Reps, um, and then they have the House of Review, right, the Legislative Council. And that is something that we did away with about 100 years ago. And as a result, um, if the governing party of the day has a majority um, in the Legislative Assembly, which the Labor Party currently do, it almost feels like everything else is redundant. Um, they don't have to rely on the minor party support in the in the upper house. Um, they can simply wave through their agenda. It also means that you have an you have an, uh, an opposition who grow a bit tired. I mean, the LNP have been in opposition for nine years, um, and it feels like every kind of fight they try and muster up against legislation is always beaten because the Labor Party are a very strict and binding party, and they always have a majority. Um, so it's quite tough. I don't envy their position, um, but at the same time, I think that it would be a lot better if the scope was a bit uh, broadened. Like, if we are truly looking for a conservative horizon um, here in, in Queensland, which I do think has the ability to happen. I mean, we saw the voice result was was unreal here in Queensland. Um, but currently, I think their scope is is quite narrow. Um, you know, obviously, Christopher, yeah, to his credit, is focusing on the issues that matter. That That's his line is the cost of living crisis, the health crisis, um, the youth crime crisis and the housing crisis. Um, but I think if we don't start talking about issues where a lot of people are, are very, very passionate about, um, like um, ref- reforming the abortion laws. I mean, that, that's something that's very, very popular um, within the party, at least. I know there's a lot of internal pressure um, for him to um, support overturning those kind of things. I think I think he'll actually be considered a bit of a conservative leader, um, you know, other than these uh, what, what you'd call a small target strategy. And I truly do think that as much as the LNP are ahead in the polls, and obviously we've got this new guy now, Stephen Miles, which, you know, fair to say might change things in the next month. We'll see how that adjusts after the Palaszczuk's left. Um, but I think that it won't be a case of the LNP and Chris Foley winning. I think it'll be a case of Labor and Stephen Miles losing, um, which is a bit of a shame. It's kind of also a bit of an old adage that um, oppositions don't win, governments just lose. And I think that after nine years, I think people have gotten a little bit tired of it. So um, yeah, we've got about a, what, another 10 months here, but it's a case of seeing how big the uh, the, the landslide is or how big the shift is, I think. Um, back in 2012, obviously, the LNP romped to power uh, with over 80 seats, which is just unheard of under Campbell Newman. I don't think it'll be that big nowadays. Um, you know, I don't think Chris Foley is a Campbell Newman type figure, um, but I'm, I'm hopeful it could be could be a win, yeah. Yeah, because especially considering Campbell Newman was mayor of Brisbane, is very popular within metropolitan southeast Queensland, had yep. that name recognition. Whereas Christopher Foley will not get that much support in suburban Brisbane. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. I mean, he was someone who was from North Queensland, and then he moved down to my patch actually. And, and we, I actually remember, you know, roadsiding for him um, heaps. You know, sometimes in the pouring rain on the Gold Coast. Um, you know, as he as he made his way into Parliament in 2017, and yeah, he he kind of I think lacks that support maybe in Brisbane that that Campbell had. Obviously, it's not attainable for everyone to have, but. But Campbell certainly did have that allure, you know, the, the can-do attitude. Um, it was a favourable time as well in 2012, don't forget, for Campbell Newman because we just had the, the, the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd fiasco. And as much as that's federal politics, it certainly does translate on a state level. Um, I wonder, you know, in 10 months' time how much the, the botched voice decision will be playing on people's minds. I don't know. Um, we've obviously got a council election coming up um, in about three months here as well. And I don't pay too much attention to council politics, but again, that also probably affects what happens on a state level, I'm sure, as well. So it'll be an interesting time coming up. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think we'll all be watching pretty closely. And um, fingers crossed that, you know, if we have Christopher Lee leading the LNP and, and leading the state for the next four years that we get 
some kind of conservative outcome. Um, I'm not too sure if I'm frank. I'd love to give more of an assured response, um, but perhaps not. Fair enough. Um, yeah. If you don't mind answering, what would you say would be the alternative if, um, for example, Chris Foley uh, isn't the conservative that we are hoping that he will be? Uh, what would be the way that someone uh, might, who they might be interested in joining the Young Libs or the Liberals, um, mm. how could they hope to push for an alternative that is um, that is more in line with our values? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think you have to get involved. Um, so, for instance, there's a lot of key decisions that are being decided in Queensland almost every day um, via the LNP's um, body, which is the State Council. And, and that does decide all the party policies and it decides all the party Senate candidates and managerial matters. So so what does that look like? So every six years, for instance, um, the, Senate, the, the, the State Councillors all meet and they decide who will be on the Senate ticket at the next federal election. And there's certain positions on the LNP Senate ticket, namely one and two, and quite often number three on the ticket, where if you're on there, you're guaranteed a spot and a, and a job in, in Parliament for six years, along with all your parliamentary entitlements, all your par- parliamentary travel, parliamentary staff, and that's for six years fighting for causes. And we've seen how powerful that can be in the form of Jared Rennick. Um, Jared Rennick is someone with, I think, over 220,000 followers um, on Facebook. Um, he was super, super outspoken on the topic of vaccine mandates. And as someone who is vaccine-affected myself, um, I really did appreciate his advocacy on that topic. Um, but he did, he, he, um, he rocked the boat and he rocked the boat because, um, when the Morrison government refused to stand up and intervene when the States were declaring these vaccination mandates, um, Jared Rennick said, okay, well, I'm going to withhold my vote from you in what was a tight Senate. Um, and that, you know, drew the ire of a lot of people. So when his name was put, you know, as to whether we wanted to put it on the ballot again in the state council in July of this year, he lost 131 to 128. Now, that's how close the decision was, whether or not for, some, for for Jared Rennick to be in the parliament for another six years. And now that is a nail-biting decision, 131 to 128. And I guarantee there was a few people who woke up, maybe not feeling so well, and decided to stay at home. And that is deciding that a senator cannot remain in, par- in parliament for another six years. Um, a similar thing happened to what a lot of people would say um, a bit of a conservative warrior in, in Amanda Stoker. This was in the, at the 2019, Fed, or actually 2022 federal election, um, where she got shafted to number three on the Senate ticket. And by all means, I think there will be people who are coming out um, to oppose someone like Matthew Kenavan. For instance, um, in the young LNP, they're outspokenly in favour of this net zero delusion, um, at least certain people within the young LNP are. And they're, of course, entitled to hold that view. But um, that means that they're largely at odds with Matt Canavan, who is this absolute warrior for our resources industry um, and basically says that this, this net zero fantasy is a complete lie. And make no mistake that you know there'll be people within the party, machinations, um, trying to take out someone like Matt Canavan from continuing his career um, in politics on the conservative side. So I think that that's where the, the battles are being fought and won in terms of you know allowing conservative people to remain um, in politics, at least on a, on a federal level, but also on a state level, there's a number of people who are running as candidates. I mean, I mentioned Amanda Stoker before. She's now running as the candidate for Ujuru, which is a seat that you'd like to think she would win. Um, and I, I suspect that that's where, if someone really was to be wanting to get involved, um, it's better to be inside the tent um, than out of it. Obviously, it's hard for me to say as someone who's still suspended, but an aspiring member. And um, and yeah, I, I think that that's probably where they're best placed. Yeah. So on, on the broader 
conditions in Queensland. Mm. It's not really a state that, like New South Wales or Victoria, has this well-established moderate and conservative party figures in the national level, especially with um, Trevor Evans losing in the last election. Do you see any sort of, like... Uh, momentum towards the conservative side in the Queensland LNP? I think that on the federal level, that there's there's certainly a rift. I think there's definitely a rift in the sense that the the state team um, is seen to be. I don't know if the term is even moderate conservative. I think it's it's almost establishment versus anti-establishment. Um, there's a lot of people in the in the Queensland state um, team who I think are, have grown quite comfortable being in opposition for quite some time, and and as a result, when they do something like the the pathway to treaty bill and, and Chris Foley says you all must support, they all just get into line um, because they're just happy collecting a paycheck. In, in some instances, I truly believe that's the case. And then on a federal landscape, you've got a whole heap of ideologues. You've got some fantastic thinkers and speakers like Henry Pike and Luke Howarth and, as I mentioned before, Matt Canavan, even Colin Boyce up in up in central Queensland, um, a whole heap of uh, what you'd call mavericks. And they're people who, if you ask them to get into line, they'll say, okay, well, I'll get out of line. Um, and that, that tends to be something that is, has characterised a lot of the Queensland um, federal team, at least. Um, obviously, you know, we've got Peter Dutton um, up here who, you know, had the courage to at least um, you know, stand up against the, the voice to parliament, which I think a lot of people maybe don't give him enough credit for. I think that we truly could have had a different outcome if it was a case that this was a bipartisan issue or, or even if he said that, oh, you must have a... Um, you must have a conscience vote on this issue. So I think that, yeah, there's certainly not enough of a um, a presence to, I guess, call people moderate here. Like even the people who I would consider to the left of the party were still probably voting um, no on the voice. Um, but I think that, yeah, it's um, it, it's definitely that the, the state team are a little bit at odds with the federal team. Um, I'd say that if anyone was to be on the left of the party, or I guess you, you could say a moderate, would be someone like Senator James McGrath. Um, who I think definitely goes around to a lot of meetings and, and would say that, oh, I'm a conservative because I, I like the Australian flag. But then you look at his voting record um, and the things that he supports and the candidates that he supports, um, you'd find that he gum- he comes to the left of the party um, on a number of issues. Um, you know, he was someone who, for instance, you know, knifed uh, Tony Abbott and gave us Malcolm Turnbull. Um, and a lot of people um, in regional areas maybe don't know or, or, or forget that that happens. So, you know, we certainly do have them. We certainly do have that kind of divide. Um, it's maybe not as factionalised as a place like New South Wales or Victoria, like you mentioned, mate. But, yeah, the, the, the lines certainly do exist. And oddly enough, they're not really based on the old liberal and national. Like, you, you would have thought that an emerged party, because obviously in the other parties, they're the liberal party, um, that you've got the liberal and national. But it's that's really not even the divide anymore. I'd say it's establishment and anti-establishment. And the idea of the rift between the, the Nats and the Libs, it doesn't really happen anymore it's kind of just we're all the lnp this this weird hybrid this weird formula and uh yeah we just rock with it yeah right i think that's a dichotomy that we um we can all see uh with the establishment versus anti-establishment um all across the political spectrum um and it just so happens that the ideology or the i suppose you could also say christian beliefs that uh, mm. we hold would put us at odds with the establishment. So mm. supporting an anti-establishment candidate um, or at least pushing slowly in that direction at a party-wide yes. level, I think that's hugely beneficial and it can give rise to opportunities for someone who is a genuine conservative, who is um, a true renegade and will go out there 
and um, put forward our concerns and do something about it, it gives rise for an opportunity for them to yep. step forward and uh, have more play. Yeah, definitely. So no, no, I, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And it's, it's about more people getting involved. Um, that, that's probably the takeaway that I want people listening to, to definitely hear about is that they really need to. You know, I, I definitely fell into a trap um, of just thinking that I could just whine about it on Facebook or, you know, I attended a March for Life rally um, earlier this year. Um, but it's really clear that the number one thing that you can do to, I suppose, uh, anger the establishment um, or really um, get under their gears is is become a member of, if not the LNP, any political party. Um, so I think that that's really important to, to recognise what the people perhaps you don't like um, don't want you to do and then go ahead and do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's something Matthew and I are big advocates for, getting involved in mm. the party, not just sitting back on your hands. Um, Fantastic, yeah. I think that winds up that topic more or less. Matthew, you want to take yep. us into the Palaszczuk outing and uh, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about that a bit. So, yeah, from um, the conversation here, written by Paul Williams, professor at Griffith University, says, with Anastasia Palaszczuk gone, can Labor achieve the unachievable in Queensland? Mm. Uh, democracies are, by nature, systems of stability and change. But north of the Tweed River, Queensland politics is very much about stability and only a little about change. Where, for example, New South Wales has seen nine premiers over the last 20 years, Queensland has seen for just four. In a changing of the guards now occurring after Queensland, Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk, the daughter of a Labor cabinet minister and the last of the COVID-19 era, COVID era premiers, tearfully announced her resignation as the state's 39th and second woman premier. With the coming of the silly season, it's perfect time for the leadership transition. Labor can begin 2024 with a clean page. Mm. When, when Palaszczuk departs on Friday, she will have served eight years, 305 days, becoming Queensland's fifth longest and Labor's third longest serving Premier. Uh, she has represented the very safe Labor seat of an island in Brisbane southwest since 2006. Um, and she, mm. yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, I think that, that probably sums up that article. And I think that... Um, yeah, I think obviously we, we saw Palaszczuk was first elected um, as the leader after obviously Campbell Newman, um, after Campbell Newman's uh, massive romp in 2012. Um, and that was because the Labor team was basically just a team of seven. Um, so there's only seven Labor MPs elected in all of 2012 um, at the state election. And she kind of became this accidental leader. And then when Campbell Newman, um, his, the, the polls started to trend south for him, and there was a massive mutiny, I guess, amongst the, the general state. Um, you know, she became this accidental premier, not just the accidental leader of the Labor Party, but this accidental premier. And that's where, in 2015, you had this odd scenario where the left of the party, so obviously Labor have more organised factions being Labor left and Labor right. The left of the party, for, the, for quite a while now, have always had the numbers, um, but they were, they were unwilling to knife uh, the golden girl, Palaszczuk, who managed to win back an almost unwinnable 2015 state election um so they persisted with her for the 2017 and 2020 election um and they said no the 2024 election was uh too much and i think it genuinely was a case that she was tapped on the shoulder saying hey your time's up you got to go and of course she was replaced with someone uh from the left faction and that's why when you saw who was going to be the leader that, that last week you saw two people from the left being put up i.e shannon fentiman and and um uh, Stephen Miles, and th there was never a discussion about Cameron Dick because the Labor right don't have the numbers in the uh, in the caucus. Um, but how do you select a, a leader in Labor Party? So there's it's in three parts. So there's the parliamentary team, 
Um, and then you have the a vote of rank and file members. And then you also have the union pick. Um, and the union pick has grown um, uh, quite loud in the sense that you've got a lot of union bosses who seem to control the the different wings um, of the, the unions that are associated with the Labor Party um, to the point where they will have more power than a general member um, a general parliamentary team member um, in the caucus. Um, but as is the case with so many things now, these things are decided before it even goes through that three-tiered voting process um, because they knew that the voting process would get ugly and would play out in front of the media. Um, so I think basically it was a case of uh, all those three people met in a room, Cameron Dick, Shannon Fentiman and, and Stephen Miles, and they kind of said, look, you've got the numbers, you've got the numbers, okay, let's go ahead. So Stephen Miles ended up being the, uh, the pick, um, he's someone who's certainly not been kind to me in the past. Um, he's uh, essentially Labor's pit bull um, and will go at any kind of uh, small target issue, um, i.e. someone like myself, um, just to try and make the entire LNP seem like they're uh, always in the headlines for the wrong reasons. And, um, and yes, yeah, so obviously, he's their, he's their guy now. He's their guy for the next 10 months. I don't think he's that likable. Um, we will start to see those opinion polls coming in probably early next year, but it's certainly interesting. He's certainly not going to have this, uh, you know, honeymoon that Palaszczuk had after the after the COVID election, obviously, because you know everyone was saying, "Oh, Anna kept us safe. Anna kept us safe." Well, you know, Stephen didn't really play much of a part in that. So, you know, it's uh, it's a clean slate. Um, it's Stephen v. David. Um, we'll see how we go. And especially considering the current climate is a lot different to the post-COVID election with. You know, cost of living, um, crime issues, you know, he- school and healthcare systems not functioning properly. Mm. And they're the bread and butter for Labor in Queensland historically. So this is yeah. an opportunity for Chris Fully, certainly. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that, um, I think that, yeah, that's kind of being a bit of a reshifting in the sense that, you know, Labor, once in a pot of time, you know, they were seen as the party of like all the, the social care um, outlets. So yeah. the police... Um, health and teaching, those kind of things, um, those um, essential care services. But now it seems that kind of Labor have taken and adopted this uh, soft on crime mentality. And believe me, I think a lot of it's due in part to pressure from the Greens, um, who apparently want to decriminalise everything. Um, and in some instances, sure, I might be unwilling to support them, but you know, there's a lot of pressure from the Greens in the inner city, um, and and they want to they want to come at a lot of the Labor Party seats, particularly Grace Grace, who controls the um, the seat of McConnell, uh, which is in the Brisbane CBD. She's in big uh, in big danger as, as a result of the Greens, and they kind of have to move to the the radical left on a few of these um a few of these crime issues. And I think that that presents a bit of an opportunity for the Queensland LNP to really come home and, and be one of those um, people who are going to be tough on crime mentality. And I think that's what we're seeing play out in that Dave Christopher has gone um, to make breach of bail um, an offence. And uh, cracking down on youth crime, I think, is um, something that he's particularly outspoken about. And I think that will probably play well for him in those regional areas, those areas like Townsville and whatnot. It remains to be seen whether or not he's going to gain any ground um, in the city or indeed if he needs to gain ground in the city. I, I think it might be tough for Christopher Lee to get to a majority. I think he's sitting on about 34 seats right now. And I think they need about... 47 seats to form government in their own right so they need 13 seats to pick up and you look around around the state and you kind of see okay a few seats that it's definitely going to go his way um but 13 is a lot of seats um to get to a majority in his own right and then you start entertaining the idea of a potential um i guess um 
that like whether he might might not even govern in his own right. It might be the case that um, he ends up sharing government with um, with the Catters and with One Nation, um, and maybe even an independent or two, which uh, will be very interesting to see what kind of demands the Catter boys and um, and the sole One Nation MP um, have. Um, but that would certainly be an interesting time if we had a uh, if we had a, a shared government between the LNP and and Catter and the One Nation. Yeah, I think it would uh, probably be a nightmare scenario maybe for an LNP partisan. But for us, I think that would be a very favourable scenario. We'd like to see Cato, who has been, um, uh, although he hasn't had a lot of power, he, he has always sort of stood pretty strong on the issues. Um, yeah. So One Nation, uh, less so. They're a bit shaky. Uh, but I think that they're, uh, they would still be a positive influence. They would still uh, be pulling the party conservative to the right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I think if you look at, you know, an issue like, um, you know, b- being pro-life and, uh, and and against euthanasia, I think that they have one of the most outspoken um, parties against those two things. Um, and I think that's been pointed out by a lot of groups like Family Voice and the Australian Christian Lobby. So, I, yeah, I can definitely think of far worse scenarios than um, than governing with um, those guys. Um, obviously, a few of them are mavericks, um, which, is, which is quite good. I don't mind an odd maverick. Um, but yeah, it, it's something we wouldn't have seen in a long time. I don't think that, you know, One Nation or Qatar has ever had that kind of party, has ever had that kind of power um, in the past in Queensland. So yeah, it remains to be seen. Yes, yeah, sounds like uh, it could give rise to some good opportunities. Um, I think that more or less wraps up that topic. I'll give Matthew a chance to speak in a moment. But I wanted to ask, you mentioned at the start of the episode, you were inspired to get into politics by Trump, as I think a lot of our audience were. I think that was a massive political awakening, especially it brought a lot of young guys to the right. Um, what do, you, do you see a need for a Trump in Australia, somebody who will come in and will go against the establishment and uh, wants to bring a political realignment with the right, uh, with maybe the Liberal Party or some other uh, political vehicle? Um, do you see yeah. a need for that, and do you see a pathway to that happening at all in Australia? I think it's quite hard um, for two reasons. One, you've got the parliamentary system in which the leader is chosen by the parliamentary colleagues, and all of those parliamentary colleagues are going to choose um, the leader based on who they think their electorate would most likely support, and that's something that you don't have over in the US, where you know, as we've seen played out recently with the the Republican presidential debates, that. They are decided by the, you know, the Iowa caucus or the New Hampshire primaries, you know, these kind of things, these processes. But the other reason why I don't think it's necessarily popular in Australia, or uh, possible rather in Australia is because um, we actually have compulsory voting. And I think that that's often an underappreciated area of why we don't have that kind of same politics in the US. And I think on balance, it's actually to our detriment, the fact that we force people to vote. And I think w- what that means is that the politicians who seem to rise to the to the top um, are the ones who seem to go with the most vanilla slogans and aren't the ones with a slogan which makes you want to get get up and get out of bed in the morning and vote for them. So, for instance, you know, we just had Anthony Albanese elected on an election campaign slogan of on your side. I mean, that is the most vanilla, you know, platitude, focus group tested slogan you've ever heard. Um, and then you juxtapose that with politics over in the US with, you know, as you've mentioned, Trump. Um, and he's running on policies like build the wall, drain the swamp, um, all these kind of policies, which, you know, as much as they might be polarizing and some people say, oh my goodness, you know, we don't want a wall or that's, that's offensive, this kind of thing. But hey, people are enthused. They want to, they're happy to wake up on Absolutely. Tuesday, which is their election day over there 
and and wait two hours in a line to vote for this guy. Um, but because we have compulsory voting here in Australia, um, it's simply a case of they just try and have the most um, inoffensive statement and just try and appeal to the middleman um, as opposed to being more you know, ideological and, and drawing towards a certain base. Um, so I think that's a bit of a shame um, that we have a lot of small target strategy campaigns being run you know, by Albanese in 2022 and, and I would argue by Christopher Lee and, at this upcoming state election. Um, so I think that if you were to make voting op- um, optional, you could allow for a kind of Trump-style figure to be more or less elected. Um, obviously, we've got a few that are in minor parties, which I guess you could say are Trumpian, um, but we certainly are a two-party system. And if you were to have a, a true leader, um, that has to emerge within a, a major party. And, and that does look quite tough to happen, I would think, yeah. And as a follow-up on that, we've seen a lot in Europe, the growth of uh, third parties, these kind of uh, more nativist kind of parties across you know, Sweden and the Netherlands and and Germany, do you see that kind of happening here, or are we rusted on to a two-party system? I think we are pretty rusted on to a two-party system. Um, I think that there will be certain elements that emerge. I mean, look, particularly in Queensland, um, I've, and I've said it before, but there is no upper house, and that is a huge blow to a lot of minor parties. Um, you look south in a state like Victoria, and you've got what I consider to be some fantastic people from minor parties being David Limbrick um, from the Libertarian Party, who, I mean, you could almost say was the de facto opposition leader against Daniel Andrews during some of the worst lockdowns Victoria has ever seen. And, and you go to New South Wales again, where you've got another um, group of people in the in the upper house in, in John Ruddock, again from the Libertarian Party, and, and also Mark Latham from One Nation. But in Queensland, you've got Zilch. Um, you've simply got the three cat boys um, from way up north. Um, no one ever really sees them. And the One Nation MP as well, who's up there. So um, I think that, yeah, it, it is quite hard to see that kind of thing um, happening um, because, you know, we don't have an upper house here. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's a bit tricky. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. Um, so taking all that in consideration, and especially what we said earlier in the episode uh, about getting involved, do you think that if, um, for example, maybe a, a listener to this podcast right now, they said, you know, I want to change Australia. I want to, uh, you know, secure our borders, drop the crime rate and uh, stop all this cancel culture, for example. Mm. Yep. Uh, say that he, he got involved in the Liberal Party um, and he managed to rise to some sort of electoral position. Do you think that the base would go for that? I think um, that you, you said earlier with Trump, that Trump's base really loved that. They enthusiastically mm. went out to campaign for him. Could somebody yep. like that here win their election? I think they can. Um, I think that it's a case of, you know, the, the sad reality is that the, the party head office, um, you know, and obviously being within a major party comes with it, the idea that you have to be uh, electable um, and electability is, is very much a, a key issue. And, and I would argue that the, the scale of sticking to your ideological principles and remaining electable have skewed way too far in the idea of electability. I think that means that we're caving on a lot of key principles that we often fought for. Um, so I think it'd be hard. Um, obviously, I'd love to see an ideological realignment. And I think we are seeing that when you're getting more conservative outcomes like the pre-selection of um, former Senator Amanda Stoker out in New Jeru and a number, a number of other things that are coming maybe towards a more you know conservative direction like Peter Dutton coming out um, against the voice to parliament. Um, if you were to get someone like that and they were able to pass through party vetting, which is obviously a, a tricky thing, um, and also were remain... Uh, remain the ability to be in a safe seat 
um, then I think that, yeah, you could definitely get some, like a bit of a conservative manifesto going, um, at least in, in the state team. And I think, boy, oh boy, like sometimes I do think that they are in dire need some, of some fresh ideas. I mean, in nine years of opposition, it feels like they've, they've brought all these policies to the next election and then they get wiped out or they get voted down and then they have to go back to the drawing board. So they're kind of oh, running out of ideas awesome. now. And I think that some kind of conservative reawakening could be could be really positive. Um, I, I don't know that there's anyone forthcoming, um, obviously, in the next year. I think, again, they're going to they're gonna continue with this small target strategy of, you know, people coming forward and their number one issue is, you know, the, the health crisis. And, you know, sure, anyone from any side of politics can say, let's fix the health crisis. Um, but someone who can actually take on um, and fight the culture war a little bit more. Um, I think that that would be something that would be in dire need of. Obviously, you know, they get, you know, great support within the internal party amongst the membership. The membership love it when people take on the left, so to speak. Um, but the party head office are all about, you're definitely fighting the uh, the small target strategies because there are their, their focus group tested polls mean that, that that's the way in which they're going to achieve government because that's how they saw Albanese do it. So remains to be seen on whether that's going to be an effective strategy. Um, but, you know, if, if it's an effective strategy, I'd argue at what cost? At what cost are we, you know, trying to win government um, just to be, you know, an incarnation of the left, um, an incarnation of a, a pale imitation of the Labor Party, which Tony Abbott coined it as. It's something that we need to definitely try um, and avoid that we saw, you know, in New South Wales. I think you mentioned before that they'd have an, a, lot of, a lot of premiers um, in just a 20-year period. Um, and, you know, the Berejiklian government was one of the most r- radically left in recent memory. Um, passing a whole suite of social changes, um, you know, passing, uh, you know, m- massive native te- native title laws um, back in the hands of um, what I would call the, the Aboriginal industry. Um, and I think that, you know, mass, mass scale changes to the economy as well. And, and my goodness, don't even get me started on net zero um, and the, the monstrosity that that is. So, and legalising abortion to- as well, I'd throw in there. Yeah, yeah, abortion as well that they went quite radical on. And there was a number of MPs in Queensland, even in the LNP who supported that. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah, to go back to your question, it would be, it would be quite exciting. And I definitely, uh, that's someone that I'd definitely look at getting behind. And I think a lot of people within the party would. Um, but whether they can survive the modern day media, I mean, the, the, the media are just ruthless, right? You know, the moment they get a whiff that you are someone who has values, has principles, and is conservative, they will come for you like there's no tomorrow. Um, they will be on your doorstep, they'll be ringing your doorbell. Um, you know, we saw someone like, um, yeah, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Moy Redeeming um, in Victoria. Yes. Um, yeah. She is someone, yeah, yeah. She was someone who, you know, stood up at the Let Women Speak rally simply to say that men should not compete in women's sports. And boy, she was tarnished in the media as a Nazi and even by her own party leader, John Pesuto, and kicked out of the Parliamentary Liberal Party. I mean, my goodness, this is something that I would think that conservatives have broad support on. Um, and that we should be out there fighting. Um, but instantly we want to point the finger at each other and call each other Nazis. Um, and it's just so odd. It beggars belief. But yeah. It's unfortunate. Everyone's scared of their own shadow. Um, I think yeah. you're perfect proof of what happens to someone who even just acts like the ordinary Aussie acts, you know, like chats with their mates. And uh, like they, the, what you, for example, the video that uh, was recorded, that you recorded with uh, your interview, that's not a conversation that uh, is completely alien to the average Aussie. They, they say things far worse than this every day. You know, yep. schoolboys joke about things <laughs> that would make these politicians cry. Um, yeah. Yep. So I, I think that, um, yeah, they, we have to really get away from this absolutely uh, being so petrified of the left and what others will think. 
Definitely. And, um, yeah. I think something that will help with that is building these supporting infrastructure around the party. So if you have media outlets, you have uh, donor circles, that kind of stuff. So the party doesn't feel as much pressure from the mainstream media would help. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that one thing that I've definitely tried to do, obviously someone who's been, you know, um, on the peripheries of the party for the last four years has been, well, I kind of realized that the way in which you get a strong liberal party or a strong liberal and national party um, is by having um, good think tanks. Um, so there's a number of key organizations, which I think, you know, people should support, um, you know, if they are faith um, oriented, you know, you've got groups like Family Voice and the Australian Christian Lobby. Um, but even just for general conservatism, you've got an organization like CPAC, which happens every year. Um, you've got the Institute of Public Affairs, the IPA. Um, and the, the Centre for Independent Studies based down in Sydney, um, a number of key good organisations worth supporting um, on the, the centre-right of politics um, that I think people should well and truly get behind um, because once those organisations are you know, plentiful with members and plentiful with donors, then they can pump out quality research and then more or less we can kind of use that as a bit of a shield when the left try and come for us on a topic like Australia Day, for instance. So every year the IPA commission research into whether people want the date of australia day changed they, they provide that research um to counter the left-wing narratives that oh we must need it changed and they, they they take um videos of people protesting on the street they say oh look look at the groundswell of support for people wanting to change the date well the ip actually do the research and they hand it to every single um conservative mp and they say here use this poll to demonstrate to your people that if we pursue a, an agenda of trying to change Australia Day, um, which is fundamental to our, our nation's history, um, you are going against the will of the people. And it's that kind of research that when you equip, you know, an otherwise, you know, um, uh, I guess, unsuspecting MP who simply just wants to win their seat, they're convinced that, oh, to support this um, and to support changing the date would be going against the will of my people, so I'm going to vote against it. Um, so I think that's something that, you know, there's an MP here in Queensland, Henry Pike, um, who's very outspoken about um, against changing the date of Australia Day and also efforts to change our flag, don't forget, um, that if they can try and change our constitution, they will come for absolutely everything. Um, that's what, what they tried, obviously, with the voice to parliament referendum. So, so yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, yeah, there's a few things going on there um, that I mentioned, but hopefully it all ties in, yeah. Yeah, no, it all ties in perfectly. Um, was there anything that you wanted to ask, Matthew? No, I think it covers everything nicely. Um, I think I just want to ask one more question and then maybe sure. we'll wrap up. We've taken enough of your time, Barkley. Thank you for joining us and giving us your insight. Um, no worries. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to ask, with the voice to parliament um, uh, outcome, I know that you were, uh, you were public in advocating for the no side, um, as were Matthew and myself. We wanted to uh, you know, stop the voice in its tracks and in the end, Australia did. Um, do you think that this is like our Brexit moment or our Trump election? Yeah, I think it's it's really important that it is, and there will be a narrative which emerges from the left to try and downplay it. And and obviously, make make no mistake, we still are in this kind of reconciling point where we don't really know. Um, everyone the the dominoes are kind of falling. Obviously, everyone you know back earlier this year thought it would pass. Um, obviously, you look to things like Brexit and the, and the Trump election, which are just you know un unreal results that no one expected. Um, I think. This kind of was and kind of wasn't. So I think it kind of was in the sense that, you know, there was a huge, you know, galvanizing of conservative people that realized, hey, if we actually muscle up and take on an issue, um, we can we can fight it and we can win. 
Um, so I think that was very positive. But at the same time, you've got all these efforts from people like Anthony Albanese who, you know, continuously run the line of, oh, well, the odds were stacked against us, i.e. the, the yes crowd, um, because oh, only eight referendums have ever succeeded in 44 years. So, you know, it was so tough on our side and, and, a, and a referendum has never really you know, um, succeeded without bipartisan support. So he tries to run this line that the odds were stacked against them. Um, but, you know, obviously he's pointing to history where only eight out of 44 have have succeeded. But this isn't a time, this is in the year 2023, where the actions of corporations, the actions of wealthy individuals, um, sadly have an impact on the way in which this country um, is governed. And you got this, this is one of our first referendums in the social media instant era, for instance. So I think they are trying to falsely downplay this. Um, it was a tremendous result, a huge result. They had every single, you know, major media outlet. Um, they had every single, um, I guess, uh, wealthy elite um, organization and, and company um, backing them in and, and most politicians. And they, they fell flat. And sure, he can try and point to all these, you know, stats in the past. Um, but in an era where we're increasingly becoming more aware, I mean, it's hard not to be aware that the the bloody referendum was on. It was everywhere on every single ad and every, you know, celebrity or singer or football player was telling us how to vote. Um, and the fact that it failed, I think, um, yeah, we, we, we won't fully come to appreciate it until we have future referendums. And I do think they will come. I think we will have potentially a, a referendum on the Republic um, soon. And I hope that will also be voted down. Um, but yeah, I, I hope it is going to be seen as our Brexit moment. There'll be people, as I mentioned, who will try to downplay that. But I don't know. I think that's, an, that's an important narrative battle that we need to win now because it sends a message to people like Peter Dutton and Dave Crisofoli that when an issue like this emerges, where the left are trying to completely rewrite our nation's history, our nation's constitution, um, that we can fight back and not just go along and take all the punches. Yeah, 100%. We have to make sure that they don't steer it away from what it really was, which was sure. a completely grassroots groundswell by the average Aussie who said, uh, no, we won't do away with our Anglo-Celtic tradition. No, we won't do away with our Christian heritage. Um, and no, we won't, we won't give in to this um, completely false narrative of Australian history, which everyone has been taught since primary school. Um, yep. So it really was surprising that everyone bucked against it. Despite every, like you were saying, every uh, huge institution coming out in support of it, every celebrity, everyone with cultural capital in Australia coming out, and even some from overseas, we saw with Shaq. Um, yeah, sure yeah. Remember. How funny was that? Yeah, that was hilarious. Um, so yeah, and yet, despite all of that, we still got a, a pretty strong majority saying, "No, we won't put up with that. Um, yeah. We like Australia how it used to be," and so. Um, I think that pretty much wraps us up. Did you Fantastic. have anything that you wanted to say? Did you want to share any of your social media, Barkley, or did you have a message <laughs> well, for the audience? Well, if anyone would like to me, I'm, I'm really only on Facebook. Um, so if anyone would like to follow me, my name is Barkley McGain. Um, and uh, yeah, if, if anyone would like to remain in touch, feel free to reach out, send me a message. Um, I think it's really good that, particularly on a small Queensland level, that we all st remain united and stand together. Um, there's a lot of key you know, issues that are coming up. I'm sure like this misinformation bill, I think that'll be really key. Yeah, um, absolutely. To look at ways in which we can fight that, um, whether that's, you know, protesting on the street or, or reaching out to our local MPs and whatnot. Um, but otherwise, you know, I think I think it's a good time to be a conservative. I do think that there is a bit of an awakening. Um, there is a general mood, as I mentioned earlier, to consolidate within um, a major party and try and steer it in a more positive direction as opposed to, you know, delving off in the minor party land where you're fighting for a party that will get two or three percent on election day so i think 
yeah, I think it's a positive time. And um, I think it's great that you guys are running this initiative. Um, and I, I'm super supportive of anything you guys do in the future um, because I think it's a, it's a great initiative that people need to hear. Thank you very much for the kind words. We'd love to have you on again sometime. Awesome. Or if you ever want to write an article for the National Observer, um, we'd be more than happy to publish it. So we'll keep in touch. And um, thank you, Matthew, for joining me once again. Everyone, I hope that you have a great week leading up to Christmas. I hope that you are indulging in the Christmas cheer and make sure that you go to church on Christmas. All right. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you. Have a good week, everyone.